Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 21 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, June the 21st. First, I talk to Daniel Lay the CEO of cybersecurity firm ArchTIS, which has secured endorsement from the Digital Transformation Agency for its Cogency Gov offering, which provides security for government networks. It will be a great conversation about hacking and cybersecurity. And then I talked to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver, looking at what investors can expect from July the 1st. But now, let's talk to Daniel Lai. Daniel, tell us about Cogency Gov. Well, Cogency Gov is essentially a response to the increase in demand for collaboration platforms that are secure and meet government standard requirements for security and records management compliance. So it's um, a platform which is really um, based around increasing productivity and efficiency for governments to get on and do their job securely. Okay, and uh, you've recently received a Dawson from DTA. That's correct, which is um, just a validation of the product's um, worth to government and uh, the demand for it. So DTA is the Digital Transformation Agency, which was set up uh, under the Turnbull government, was in response to making sure that the procurement processes for digital transformation could occur at a, a one place with um, a one procurement process and, uh, you know, take away the cumbersome red tape that individual agencies would do to procure these type of um, services and platforms and technologies. Uh, so essentially, you enter into an agreement with the Digital Transformation Agency. They'll do a heads of agreement, which allows you to get access to the entire government, all the agencies, including state and territory agencies, as well as government-funded institutions such as the uh, universities. So for us... They, we, they went through the process of determining value for money on behalf of all of those um, people associated with the Digital Transformation Agency. Uh, they cleared us of that. They checked our security um, compliance requirements and certifications and uh, then put us onto the panel. So it gives us access to a, an enormous marketplace. Well, that's wonderful. Now, uh, of course, Scott Morrison has reshuffled his ministry. Um, are there implications for Australia's tech sector and cybersecurity? Look, I think the, the concern for us is that they're in the cybersecurity market was that they had a dedicated cybersecurity minister previously to this. 
And and the concern is that it, is it an indication that they t are taking it less seriously, uh, giving it that dedicated focus under the cybersecurity um, strategy that was implemented under Turnbull. Look, I, I given, given the announcements recently of the additional funding uh, into, for cybersecurity uh, to address not only the shortfall in, in resources, but also um, to assist startup companies invest, I don't think that that's the indication. And I think certainly with the, you know, the frontline um, news stories that are coming through with the ANU hack, Canva, um, et cetera, Austell, that it's not going to go away. So, but he, uh, we'll wait and see. Well, those hacks on plus like uh, companies like Canva and uh, Apple by an Adelaide team, for example, show the rising prevalence of high-profile cyber breaches. And that's a concern for all of us. Look, I, I think it's it's been there for quite some time. I think that the public is getting better and better educated about it. Uh, this last year in 2018, Gartner, which is the world's largest uh, consulting strategic consulting company on the tech sector, for the first time in their global survey, people rated security higher than convenience in terms of um, technology. So I think there's a worldwide awakening to the sensitive nature of not only people's private information, but of national security. And, uh, and I think we're seeing at both ends of industry as well as citizenship that that concern has been on the rise. And, and we're only going to see more and more cases of this as, we are, as, as industry and government strive to tackle the enormous problem of not only state actors, but organised crime. And for that matter, political agencies as well. Uh, absolutely. And as you're well aware, that Scott Morrison announced that all political parties had been attacked in leading up to the election. Um, and um, so so it, it's happening across the board, as well as the Parliament House breach. We, we, need, uh, we need, obviously, stepped-up security, but uh, the hackers seem to be one step ahead. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. At my time when I was the director of IT security in customs, one of the things that you, was clearly apparent was that organized crime don't get allocated budgets or efficiency dividends. So 
when you're dealing with a competitor which has unlimited resources to make unlimited profit, you're already behind the eight ball with you in government and you're set strict budgets with efficiency dividends. And I, this is one of my fundamental issues with both sides of government. They understand that this is an enormous problem, but they have, they're yet to confront it with a program or a special fund that agencies and industry can you know, call on to upgrade uh, their security practices where they are critical to national security. Now, most cybersecurity budgets for agencies come out of their general budget and it, they're all under that pressure. So how do they not only support their own IT services, but then how do they support the security of those IT services? So I think this, need, this needs a little bit of out-of-the-box thinking and needs uh, some way mechanism of propelling the uh, the maturity of our cybersecurity controls and protection mechanisms forward rapidly to address the current issue, because we're never going to have the resources that organised crime or, for that matter, state actors are going to throw at the, the the attacking our national critical infrastructure, getting data, um, and, and a good example of that is the ANU. You know that 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 attack for on the ANU required persistent resources of highly skilled people to to, to breach that their their, uh, their their security profile. Now, uh, of course, uh, when you talk about resources, I mean, there's, the government has allocated $570 million for the Australian Federal Police and uh, ACO. Are there other issues they need to be addressing? It, it, it's uh, Look, I think it's only the tip of the iceberg. And, and the $570 million for AFP and ASIO... As I said, that's great for them to be able to respond in terms of an intelligence program and for, you know, the Australian High Tech Crime Commission and all of those sorts of things. But it really doesn't address the security of all the other agencies outside of those two agencies. It's very targeted. And that's what I, I guess we're, we're missing from, as a nation, we're missing this strategy holistically across the ecosystem of uh, not just our national security and our intelligence services, but our industries, our small businesses. The whole national economy is dependent upon working in a secure, stable environment um, with a, as a known quantity so business can invest and plan and reap the benefits of that so that consumers are, can, can operate safely within that environment to support that economic growth that we're, we're desperately seeking. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, it's, it needs to be a lot broader than just the $570 million for the AFP. I actually just think that's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you've also had the $300 million invested in, after the intelligence review, uh, looking at consolidating our intelligence services. You've got the Australian Cyber Security uh, Centre, which has been established. So we've, we've got a lot of activity going on here, and certainly it's all welcome and it's all heading in the right direction. But $570 million, when you've got a billion dollars worth of um, annually of cyber breaches that, that affect the economy, is nothing. I mean, it, it, it's just a drop in the ocean, particularly when you're trying to establish new industries, such as the cybersecurity industry, which Australia is world leading in, you know, and to promote that industry for future jobs growth and export markets. I mean, one of the big issues is we have a tech skills shortage in Australia. How do the government address that? Well, you would recognise that some of that money is going directly into education and the um, development of new um, skill sets in TAFE and in, in you know, universities um, to, to promote cybersecurity skills and address that shortage. It's not just there, it's, um, 
it, it's, it needs to be not just in terms of those placements, but culturally. I mean, in Israel, what they do is they seek these people out at an early age in their school programs and incentivize them to go down that path of tech and cybersecurity and cyber uh, defense and cyber attack. Um, and they raise their interest through the STEMS program and it's quite integrated. Um, I don't know whether we have such a sophisticated approach to solving our skills shortage. It's all welcome. We need to do it. There's going to be a dramatic demand for these resources and there currently is all we have to change the tactic again. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you've got a limited supply of resources, how else can you address the issue? Do we look at moving businesses and, and incentivizing security service security as a service in the cloud to help rapidly rise the security posture of our industries and small medium businesses as well as government where we can maximize the benefit of those limited resources because addressing the resourcing issue is a long-term program you're not going to be able to fill these people out they don't just come out of college and they're cyber ready they're cyber aware when they come out and then you've got to be then have that like all trades that experience and, and nurturing them into a way of thinking and the frameworks and all of that sort of thing. So the program will work is, you know, it's three to five years away before those resources are, are fully embedded and productive and um, progressing in, and filling the void for that demand. In the meantime, we've got to solve a problem that's immediate. And that is that we are in a hotly contested space every single day now where attacks are coming from all aspects uh, to all areas of our, uh, our economy, our national security, and our government. So how do, we, how do we address that now? So so it's wonderful that those programs work and that money is being spent, but how are we going to address the immediate issues uh, of the threat that's current with the current resourcing we have? And I think that's where they, they're missing the point. So we need to be more strategic. And uh, those are very wise words. And Daniel, thank you very much for your time. Look, thank you very much for your time, Leon. It's been a pleasure. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Shane Oliver. Shane Oliver, we're coming to the end of June. So uh, I think it's timely to ask you, what are your top predictions for shares from July the 1st? That's a good question. Uh, we've had a, a reasonable run in the share market, at least for the last six months. Uh, the last six months of last calendar year were a bit rough. But uh, my view is we'll probably see the share market higher in a year's time uh, from here. But I do think we'll probably go through <clears throat> a little bit of a rough patch along the way because these issues around trade have not not been resolved. And, of course, that's leading to uh, weaker economic data in the US and elsewhere. So it's quite likely that we'll see um, some sort of dip in share markets along the way. But on a 12-month horizon, I think the environment of low interest rates, reasonable profit growth and okay sort of valuations, we'll see further gains in share markets. Uh, the housing market, that looks like it's starting to bottom. Would that be right? I Yeah, look, I, I think what's happened with housing is that sits around the election time, there's been a bunch of positives which have come in. So the big negatives were a huge supply hitting the Sydney and Melbourne property markets. Obviously, a lot of, a lot of those were apartments um, at a time of pretty constrained lending conditions from the banks. So they, they were driving the market down. 
And of course, we also saw a collapse in foreign buying. Then, of course, uh, starting around May, uh, we saw a bunch of positives kick in. Uh, firstly, the federal government announced uh, some lending support for first-term buyers. Then we saw the election result, which you know obviously removed any threat to negative gearing and capital gains tax, at least for the next three years. That was clearly weighing on the market. Then, of course, we've seen interest rate cuts from the Reserve Bank with the prospect of more rate cuts ahead. And on top of all of that, APRA has announced that it's reviewing the interest rate serviceability test uh, for when people get a mortgage. Currently, uh, banks have to allow uh, that people are able to service their loans if, if the mortgage rate rises to 7% and above. So all of those things, the relaxation of all of those things, you know, positive developments in relation to all of those things, I think have, have seen buyer interest return uh, and that has led us to um, revise up our top to bottom forecasts, particularly for Sydney and Melbourne and we now think we're getting pretty close to the bottom. Have we actually seen the bottom? It's quite possible um, but I do think there's there's potentially still a bit more downside out there because lending conditions are still quite tight and we are starting to see a bit of uncertainty about the broader economy weighing and that could impact unemployment. But I, th I think we have seen the worst of it. Um, if we do see more downside, it's probably you know, 4 or 5% or so in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and then as we go through next year, I'm looking for broadly flat prices as uh, rising unemployment acts as a bit of a constraint on the property market. But my, my feeling is that the worst is probably behind us unless – of course, the global economy falls into recession, dragging Australia into recession too, which is not my base case. Uh, now, you're saying further interest rate cuts will stimulate prices along with the coalition taking government. Markets are pricing in at least two more interest rate cuts over the next year and possibly uh, another one in 2020, taking it down to 0.75%. That's correct. The market is uh, pricing at least another two more interest rate cuts. Uh, we actually think there'll be three there is a bit of debate about uh, what level of interest rates it's viable to go down to. If you look at uh, the, the key issue here, which is bank deposit uh, rates, 90% of bank deposit rates um, are above an interest rate of 0.5%. So obviously there's a scope there for banks to lower their deposit rates to to fund a reduction in mortgage rates consistent with falling cash rates. But once you get down to 0.5% and all those deposit rates will come down, you'll have more deposit rates stuck around the zero range. Therefore, the banks will be more and more constrained in terms of what they'll be able to pass on um, without severely impacting their, their net interest margins. I guess you could then say, well, who cares about the bank's net interest margins? That's their problem. Well, it's our problem too. If their net interest margin and profitability goes down, then that will impede their ability to make loans. And, of course, that feeds back to the broader economy. So the Reserve Bank, of course, is conscious of all of this, doesn't want to push the banks too hard, um, and therefore I, th I think they'll probably end up uh, taking rates lower, but somewhere around 0.5% they'll stop. And then they'll have to think about doing other things. Hopefully it won't get that bad. I think there are a bunch of positives on the Aussie economy which will <clears throat> sort of keep us out of recession and, and keep growth going. But if the chance we do get down to 0.5%, which we probably will, and then the Reserve Bank feels there's a need to do more, then, then that brings into, this, into play this debate about quantitative easing, whether the Reserve Bank does some of the sort of non-traditional measures that uh, the Fed and Bank of Japan and uh, European Central Bank have done in terms of injecting cash into the economy. So that's that's going to be an issue and that's going to be a source of increasing debate, I suspect, over the next 
six months. Of course, uh, if the banks don't pass on the fully pass on the reductions onto customers, the impact on the economy and consumer confidence will not be material enough to move the GDP much higher, would it? Well, it depends how much they pass on. If you if you take the last um, the last rate cuts, point two five percent, two banks, two of the major banks passed on point two five percent, and the other two were a bit less than that. A lot of debate about that uh, at the time, but you know the point is that the bulk of it was passed on. I, I suspect the bulk of you know the next few rate cuts will be passed on. It, it is worth bearing in mind that the banks have seen a sharp reduction in their funding costs in recent times. Uh, after a big rise in funding costs through the course of, of last year. And, of course, last year they raised their interest rates by 10 to 15 basis points to reflect that. And, of course, uh, I, I guess if the RBA is cutting cash rates and they're being asked to pass that on, um, you could argue, well, they should be able to do that because the, the the reason for the interest rate hikes last year, the mortgage rate hikes last year, has now been removed. And, of course, the Reserve Bank is lowering the cash rate. Um, so I think the bulk of rate cuts will be passed on. But once you get down to around 0.75%, 0.5%, um, that will start to become more difficult. And then, as you say, the benefit to the economy of lowering interest rates will gradually start to recede. And the Reserve Bank will have to think about doing other things, which, of course, brings into play quantitative easing. Uh, now, the other issue, too, that uh, which has been fascinating me is about the technology bubble and uh the valuations in the technology sector in some cases seem to be the highest on record. I'm just wondering whether it's going to burst. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Uh, and it's been a question uh, playing in the minds of many for some time now. I think quantitative easing benefited, benefited tech stocks against cyclical stocks. You know, We've gone through this period where investors globally are very concerned about the cyclical environment we're in. Uh, so they, they've skewed their investments to stocks which were seen to be somewhat immune to cyclical weakness. So you stay away from automakers, and you stay away from industrials, um, but, but you focus your investing on, on growth stocks. And of course, high on the list of growth stocks are tech stocks. And of course, that attracts a lot of interest because everyone's uh, you know using streaming and uh, Netflix and all these sorts of things and so these names come to the fore and they're obviously create a lot of interest now theory is that at some point global growth will become sounder interest rates will rise bond yields will rise quantitative easing will be reversed um, yeah, the feds had an attempt at that but it seems to be coming to an end fairly quickly but at some point in time, the, the, the factors that boosted uh, the growth stocks, you know, the tech stocks, will come to an end. Um, there was a, a theory that, that might happen last year, going into this year. But of course, uh, yet again, we've seen uncertainty about the, the cyclical environment globally, um, and that of course has again weighed on cyclical stocks and benefited the tech stocks. So yes, I think at some point it will come to an end. And yes, there are questionable valuations are getting to extremes. But it's still hard to see at what point it will come to an end, uh, and therefore, in the meantime, those those sectors seem to still still do quite well. I should point out, though, that it's a little bit different to 20 years ago when we had a tech bubble. Back then, uh, a lot of the earnings were imaginary, and of course, people were using alternative measures of valuation. Um, and of course, it all ended in tears, even though the the fundamental promise of technology has has delivered and. and Perhaps more so, but but I think it is a little bit different to back then when Nasdaq was trading on a hundred times. Today, Nasdaq is is trading on a more reasonable level. I think it's around 
it's around uh, 40 times PE. So yes, it's it's arguably overvalued, but not as much as uh, was the case, say, 20 years ago. In fact, if you look, I just checked then, the, the PE on NASDAQ is down around 20, uh, 31 times. So it's nowhere near as extreme as it was back in uh, the height of the last tech boom, back in 1999-2000. Right, okay. Well, all up, but you'd say the equity markets will be fairly steady in a state of growth, but uh, surely you would expect uh, volatility to remain higher than usual over the coming year, with, with the world reacting to the slowing US economic growth along with the continued trade wars between the world's two largest trading partners. They're the big issues, and that's what I think, yes, will deliver some volatility. We've had a good run-up. Year to date, markets have had a good uh, start for the year. Uh, they hit a bit of a wobbly patch in May because of the, the resumption of that those trade fears. But as we speak at the moment, the S and P five hundred is up fifteen percent year to date. Eurozone shares they're up thirteen percent. Uh, the Chinese share market up twenty one percent, and our share market is up fifteen point seven percent year to date. Um, so pretty good. This is calendar year to date. So pretty good returns year to date. So it does seem to to me that you know at some point here we'll go through a bit of a rough patch because, as you say, those trade issues are still there. They haven't been resolved. And, of course, we have seen some weakish economic data coming out of around the world. It's still fairly soft. It was hoped that it would have picked up by now, but I think the trade uncertainty is sort of added to business caution. And this is the, the big debate. You know, people get into this sort of debate about whether tariffs help a country or not. I, I guess as an economist, I, I lend to the view that they're not helpful, that you just end up with a museum piece, which was something that Hawke and Keating many years ago tried to uh, avoid for Australia. But the problem is that 30 to 40 percent of world trade is part of a supply chain. Um, and so as soon as you disrupt that with these tariffs or the threat of tariffs, uh, then businesses, are, uh, they lose their confidence. They don't know where to invest um, because if they, if they invest a plan in, put a plan up in one country, then you know, is that going to be subject to, to tariffs with a new disruption? So I think this um, threat of tariff war, which we've been facing now for the last year, um, is taking a toll on business confidence. And that's a big risk for President Trump in all of this, that um, so far the US economy has held up okay. The unemployment rate is very low. But if these uh, issues around trade are not resolved, um, then it will continue to impact business confidence. That in turn will affect investment, uh, which will, will in turn start to affect employment in the US. And we know from history that US presidents don't get re-elected when unemployment is rising. So I think Donald Trump uh, sort of is aware of this and then ultimately wants to cut deals. So he's, he's acting tough to try and cut cut deals. And I think ultimately he will. That's our base case, that he will cut deals, uh, including with China, which is the big one here. But, um, you know, it may be the case that share markets might have to fall a little bit further um, to sort of, to, to pressure him and, and others to, to cut those deals. Uh, that's why I think we could go through a bit more volatility before these issues are resolved. I, I don't think we're going to go into recession, but the risks are there globally. I, I tend to think this is just another rerun of what we saw in 2015-16 when global indicators slowed down, but they didn't go into recession. Um, but you know, President Trump really needs to resolve this trade issue fairly quickly um, in the months ahead. Well, Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your insights, and I'm sure everyone will be fascinated with them. And uh, thank you again. My pleasure, Leon. Great to talk to you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Facebook has unveiled an ambitious plan to create an alternative financial system. 
that relies on a cryptocurrency that the company has been secretly working on for more than a year. The cryptocurrency called Libra will shake up the banking system and will have partners as diverse as MasterCard and Uber. Facebook hopes to begin it next year with 100 partners. It would be the most far-reaching attempt by a mainstream company to jump into the world of cryptocurrencies and could become the foundation for a new financial system not controlled by today's power brokers on Wall Street or central banks. The social network hopes it will help 1.7 billion people without a bank account to transfer money instantly and affordably from their mobile phones. Technology to make transactions with Libra will be available as a standalone app, as well as on WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger platforms, as early as 2020. It will allow consumers to send money to each other as well as potentially pay for goods and services using the Facebook-backed digital currency instead of their local currency. The Libra digital token will be directly backed by government currencies like the dollar or euro, according to a paper describing the technology. Unlike Bitcoin, the best-known cryptocurrency, it will not fluctuate in value any more than real-world money, and it is not likely to appeal to speculators. To acquire Libra, a reference to the Roman measurement for a pound once used to mint coins, through a new Facebook subsidiary called Calibra, users are likely to have to show government identification, like a driver's licence, which would make it unappealing for black market transactions like buying drugs. Facebook said the design of Libra would allow individuals to store, spend and transfer money with close to zero transaction fees. Libra is partly targeted at the $613 billion annual market for cross-border remittances. Analysts are suggesting Libra could be a huge moneymaker for Facebook, arriving as its growth slows. And President Trump opened the door to possibly firing Federal Reserve Chair Jerome H. Powell, an almost unprecedented attack on America's central bank just as top Fed leaders are meeting in Washington, D.C. to decide what to do on interest rates. Let's see what he does, Trump said when a reporter asked him whether Powell should be removed as chair. The White House looked into whether Trump could remove Powell as Fed chair in February, according to a Bloomberg report. Trump started asking advisers whether he could fire Powell in December, after markets dipped on fears of the escalating trade war with China and the Fed's plans for more rate hikes in 2019. Trump's top economic advisers have told him it's not legally possible to get rid of Powell, and National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow insisted on Tuesday that there was no White House push to remove the Fed chair. But the President's ire about Powell has not subsided. I want to be given a level playing field, and so far I haven't been, Trump said, before boarding a plane to Florida to launch his re-election campaign. And while President Trump says he and Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping will have an extended meeting next week at the G20 in Japan, his plan to impose tariffs on virtually all products from China is running into a wall of opposition from the business community, amid fears that what began as a temporary negotiating tool is becoming a permanent feature of trans-Pacific trade. Hundreds of companies this week testified over seven days of hearings on the President's proposal to expand tariffs to an additional $300 billion in Chinese imports. After a year-long trade war, those are the only Chinese imports that remain duty-free. USTR has received more than 1,600 written comments on the plan, with the overwhelming majority warning that additional tariffs would raise prices for consumers, cost American jobs and disrupt production at companies across the nation. If we're forced to move production from China, it will take a long time to make sure that new factories will make the garment correctly and can get the proper materials. The costs may be too great too, as we are barely profitable now, wrote Mark Carrado, 
president of Leading Lady, a bra maker in Beechwood, Ohio, who was scheduled to be among the first witnesses. The avalanche of complaints suggests that industry patience with the president's tariff-heavy trade policy is evaporating. His sudden threat last week to impose tariffs on Mexican imports in a dispute over border security, coupled with fading prospects for a comprehensive trade deal with China, explain the increasingly vocal opposition, according to trade analysts and executives. The tone has changed since the Mexican tariff episode. Edwin Alden, an economics professor at Western Washington University, told the Washington Post. The level of concern in business is going up, and the willingness to challenge the president more directly on this issue is increasing. Senate Republicans, including Senate Finance Committee Chairman Charles Grassley of Iowa, are considering legislation that will limit the president's ability to impose tariffs. Trump began imposing import taxes on more than $250 billion in Chinese goods a year ago to compel China to treat American companies fairly, particularly by respecting their intellectual property. As a confrontation with China intensified, many industry groups swallowed the te- their tariff concerns in hopes that the president would succeed in forcing Beijing to change its practices. Until early May, that seemed a good bet, as Trump repeatedly said a historic trade deal with China was imminent. But negotiations abruptly stalled six weeks ago after the president's chief trade negotiator, Robert E. Lighthizer, accused China of reneging on a tentative deal. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross played down prospects for an early accord. And the RBA, in minutes of its meeting, has signalled that interest rates could fall below 1% by November. And the economy is at risk of descending into a slow, long-term decline if governments and business fail to take action on significant economic, social and environmental challenges, a new landmark study has warned. Real incomes could be almost $40,000 higher or lower by 2060, depending whether or not political, business and civic leaders take bold steps to face up to a world being disrupted by technology, an ageing and growing population and climate change, the Australian National Outlook says. Informed by more than 50 senior leaders from 23 businesses, non-government organisations and universities, the two-year study led by CSIRO Chairman David Thody and National Australia Bank's outgoing Chairman Ken Henry concludes the country is at a crossroads. It identifies the two most likely scenarios for Australia's future by 2060. A slow decline, where GDP grows an average of 2.1%, or a more positive and ambitious outlook vision, where GDP expands 2.8% annually. The difference amounts to average real wages either being 40% higher than today at $110,000, or 90% higher at about $150,000. The 80-page report and modelling identifies five shifts that need to occur across industry, urban, energy, land and culture. Despite a world record 28 consecutive years of economic growth and among the highest living standards in the world, the report cautions that Australia's high dependence on mining exports has left the economy exposed to shocks. Among the five shifts to deliver a more prosperous society, it calls for industry to be transformed. It identifies growth industries including agriculture, healthcare, cyber security, hydrogen exports, food manufacturing, mining, metals, construction and education, partly to take advantage of the rising Asian middle class. Industry must also improve on low adoption rates of technology, investing skills to ensure a globally competitive workforce that is prepared for technology-enabled jobs, and develop export-facing growth industries that draw on Australia's strengths and build competitive advantage in global markets and value change. Second, the report says an urban shift will enable well-connected, affordable cities that offer more equal access to quality jobs, lifestyle amenities, education and other services. 
Third, a shift to reliable, affordable and low emissions technology will allow almost all electricity is generated by zero emissions renewables within 40 years. Fourth, a land shift will create a profitable and sustainable mosaic of food, fibre and fuel production, carbon sequestration and biodiversity, the report says. Fifth, a shift in culture will encourage more engagement, curiosity, collaboration and solutions and should be supported by inclusive civic and political institutions, it says. This would help rebuild trust and respect in Australia's political, business and social institutions, which has been damaged in recent years. In line with Western democracy, the percentage of people who say they trust government had fallen to 26% from 2016, from 42% in 1993. And a growing number of Australians are falling behind on their mortgage, hit by weaker house prices and high levels of debt, as more signs emerge that consumers are leading the economy down. Ratings agency Moody's reported that the number of delinquencies on residential mortgage-backed securities rose through the March quarter, with 1.58% behind on their repayments, up from 1.48% in the prior March quarter. Moody's senior analyst, Alina Chen, said with household debt at almost 200% of annual disposable income, a large number of homeowners were financially exposed. And a world-beating performance from Australian shares has been overshadowed by the re-emergence of geopolitical uncertainty and a wave of risk aversion in global markets, leading to softer performance for super funds in the final stretch of the financial year. According to estimates from leading superannuation research house Super Ratings, the typical balance option return was 0.7% in May, as funds were dragged down by falls in international shares, triggered by the re-emergence of the US-China trade conflict and uncertainty surrounding central bank policy. The bright side has been the resilience of Australian shares and property, both of which saw a brief boost from the coalition's surprise election win. But this was not enough to save super funds from a month of negative performance. Markets have since recovered following May's weakness, but members should not expect a bumper end to the financial year. The year-to-date return is sitting at 5.1% for the median balanced option, which is below the 8.5% per annum return achieved over the past 10 years. An AGL has become the second suitor to walk away from Vocus in as many weeks after the power and gas supplier withdrew its $3 billion takeover offer. Shares in Vocus plummeted on Monday after AGL abandoned its pursuit of Vocus, its second tilt at the business, less than a week after it became public. AGL is the fourth bidder to call off takeover talks with Vocus in two years. And Coles is aiming to cut costs by $1 billion by 2023 to reinvest in its stores and supply chain and grow sales at least in line with a $100 billion food and grocery market. In a strategy update, the first since Coles demerged from West Farmers last November, Chief Executive Stephen Kane said the refreshed strategy was based on three pillars, inspiring customers through best value food and drink solutions to make their lives smarter, selling through efficiency and pace of change, and winning together with team members, suppliers and communities. Coles plans to differentiate itself from Woolworths, Aldi and Metcash's IGA retailers by optimising its store and supply chain network, growing private label brands and becoming a destination for health and creating Australia's most sustainable supermarket. Mr Kane is aiming to grow revenues at least in line with the market over the long term and cut costs by $1 billion over four years using technology to automate manual tasks and simplifying above-store roles to remove duplication and offset rising energy and labour costs. 
Coles aims to restore profit growth by 2021. And a proposed $2 billion Indigenous-led coal-fired power station in Collinsville in North Queensland, developed by Brisbane-based Indigenous company Shine Energy and headed by traditional Biri man Ashley Dodd, is set to revive one of the country's oldest coal towns. The town's population has declined by 50% over 10 years and the town is struggling to survive. It will take a decade for construction to be completed, generating 2,000 jobs in the region. The project would focus on Indigenous employment. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Toby Litton, the CEO of Auckland-based Parkable, a Deloitte Fast 50 winner, which provides staff parking solutions for enterprises and small businesses, and a sharing economy-style public parking app, and which has just entered the China market. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Professor Sinclair Davidson about the government's chances of getting its tax cuts package up in the following week, with a new parliament resuming post-election. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care, be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.